Ben Rising is a guy who will swear by the moon god. And if I look at Ben Rising's success and his wall, dude kills big bucks consistently. Sure. Yeah, so, and he's not the only one. I'm sure, I'm sure there are yeah. a lot of people out there. Yeah, top Ben everything he knows. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's exactly it. Uh, just you and the Amish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> clap and i'm back you've got the clap <laughs> damn it no i got my i got shoulders here here is the thing um you know so strauss llama and i are in columbus right and it was hot so i mean uh, we weren't very optimistic about what we were going to get into but it's good to be in columbus you know you're in big buck territory and the the domino effect is usually uh oh it's time to hang stands jeremy has jared jared can hang the stands mm. well in this case it was john who's older than me who defers to me and there's nobody underneath me so i have to hang the stands and of course yeah now i'm like injured so you can hang a stand too yeah i was good i i hung a couple stands i felt good about it um but like now i'm sore because i'm old dude hanging tree stands is uh, difficult a lot of people i've seen a lot of people struggle uh, well, you got to have the lineman's belt first off. Like I, I hung a lot of stands. Well, you don't have to. I know I hung a lot of stands without them, yeah. and like now I'm like, wow, I'm stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You absolutely should. I learned to hang a stand without a lineman's belt. Hundred percent. Did I start using a lineman belt till I was? Um, I didn't start using a <laughs> safety harness till I was like 25. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like. Well, I, yeah. My dad didn't use one, so like I kind of use. I didn't start using a. Lyman's belt to probably two, three years ago. Mm -hmm. And I just started using a harness till maybe five or six years mm -hmm. ago. Well, dude, the early, and again, date myself. Because like my, my uncle found a stand and shattered both his legs. I know. Kind of what did it for me. The early days of harnesses were the ones that you pulled out and it was like a Rubik's cube of a harness to try to put mm -hmm. together. And you're like, forget this. Yeah. I don't need one of these. Yeah. Fortunately, Muddy makes a really nice one. I've had that thing for five or six years <laughs> yeah did you go to uh i guess it'd be dicks no i hunted with my old one yeah. last time i am gonna make it i need a new one that's who has them from what i've heard cool so but yeah so uh season's open we were in ohio i was freaking there yesterday i didn't even think to look should look yeah well i went and picked up some sent away just b body wash mm -hmm. stuff i was running low so mm -hmm. got a new shipment of buck fever in mm-hmm so uh, we had a really nice buck in Illinois, uh, mm -hmm. bed down right in front of the muddy camera, Yeah, which is cool. cool. Yeah, we haven't really had a shooter on that camera yet. And once you know, yesterday at like 2.30, came in and plopped himself plopped down. Plopped himself down. Yeah. Really cool to watch that behavior. So he left at about 7.30. So he was in there for four or five hours. Yeah. Um, get up, eat a little bit, back down, reposition with the wind. Get up, eat a little bit more, back down, reposition with the wind. <coughs> what those big bucks do, man. They don't just lay. You know, they'll get up and they'll feed and they'll reposition. It seems like, too, if you can catch one being that comfortable in front of a camera mm -hmm. um, or in a different instance, if you get them just enough in front of a certain camera, if you just play your cards right and you wait for the right weather front, typically you can kill them in those locations. He's got to be spending a lot of time there. I wouldn't think so. wouldn't surprise me if that's that buck that we jumped in that corner by the corn. Could Remember be. that we just, like, got a quick glimpse of going down through? Yeah, could be. So, but yeah, I mean, that, that was cool to see. And I've picked up a few mature bucks on this new, um, piece of ground that I've got adjacent to me in Kentucky, uh, a couple of, nothing like big, but a couple mature deer, mm -hmm. um, just waiting for something big. I feel really good about our new camera spots on the lease in Kentucky. Like it's just a matter of time, mm -hmm. but it's been hot. 
it's still good. It, like even this week's like seventies. Strauss Lama and I are going to take the boys out on uh, Saturday PM, and we've had a couple two and three year olds like every night. Clockwork. Every huh? night, like clockwork. So just on a food plot, right? Yep, a uh, little winter rye plot in between uh, a bunch of clover that I have planted on this ridge. So you know, who knows? I mean, Saturday could be the day that they break the mold and they don't show up. I mean, wouldn't surprise me, but um, they've yeah. been oh. in there every night, like clockwork, from about 5.30 to 6.30. Yeah, I'm just looking at our weather here. It's like 71, 72, 78, even through the rain front this weekend, which is going to happen, 73, 71, 71. It's rough. And the temperature doesn't drop after that. We get like some, a couple days of east winds all the way through next weekend. It's like I don't see any huntable days in the future. Yeah, and this is the hard part, man, because, like, again, I told Strauss this weekend, like, I'm anxious already. Like, I'm f- looking for a big buck, looking to figure out patterns on one, you know, and it's like, okay, well, it's not October yet. All of a sudden, you look at that 10-day. We're now on the 7th to 10th of October, and it's like, man, eh, none of this looks real huntable. And now you're, like, you start to feel that pressure a little bit sneaking up on you. So I wish my, yeah, my wife could understand, like, She's like, you hunt all of October and all of November. I'm like, no. No. I was like, there's very specific five times. or ten days in those two months that are gonna boil down to and yeah, eventually you just gotta get in the tree, but Yeah. So we, those years suck. Those years have come and gone where there's just no good weather friends to come. I know. And, and eventually I hate it, you just man. have to hunt. Yeah, it's it, it makes me worried. I the nice thing now is at least I'll <laughs> sound, sound like a shitty dad, but I'm like, all right, I'm gonna take the kids out in these kind of crappier weather days because they're just looking to shoot a one or two year old they don't care yeah you know a buck and uh you know hopefully i can get their tags punched next weekend we'll be down in kentucky and it's youth gun season next weekend so might as well take them out and try to kill one with a crossbow or a gun yeah you never know the forecast can change too the fact that there's no cold front coming after this rain is odd it's just yeah i mean the listen at the end of the day just like yesterday on that illinois the bucks still have to move Right. And I mean, it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time. It's just not as likely that you're going to see a a big buck on his feet in daylight. Yeah. Just stock one in his bed. It's not that hard. (laughs) As we proved in the Dakotas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of hunting Ohio, uh, we've got an Ohioan. Ohioan? Ohioan. Ohioan. Mm -hmm. Uh, A big buck slayer at that. Uh, Adam Hayes. Yes, sir. Uh, Team 200. because he kills 200 inchers. And that seems like the logical scenario there. I don't think I'm going to beat him up for it, but I think that, uh, I wonder if he regrets that name. <laughs> Team 200? Yeah. Well, that's it, a little it, bit is high. It a, is it a great name, but it's such a hard benchmark to maintain. <laughs> yeah. Mine would be like Team 120. <laughs> yeah, team 120. What are you thinking about starting our own team, Adam? Team 125. I'm thinking like uh, Team 3-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> team 125. um but no and i think that anybody that's heard from uh, that would be a great parody we should do that this team 125 (laughs) yeah you know every year just like crushing my team name you know Mm -hmm. that's just the way yeah high bar at at the team 200 but i mean adam's killed i don't know how many do you know at least four wow it's impressive and and mostly in ohio i think or in illinois too uh i don't know a handful of them in illinois I don't know if the dark horse buck that he killed was 200 inches or not, but I think that Damn was Ohio. Close. Yeah. And it, we were just talking, he's not too far from Columbus, which is where Strauss and I were hunting this weekend. And, you know, that's, it's big buck country. Um, 
you know, and the other thing with Adam is um, he's kind of the man behind the the Red Moon now, mm-hmm. you know, and so we've talked about this with Ben Rising. You and I have had plenty of discussions Am I about correct it. Correct owner and founder of the Moon Guide. Yep, of Moon Guide and okay. and the app which we have. So we gave we kind of gave him a heads up here before the podcast is like healthy amount of skepticism sure. coming to the conversation. Curiosity, skepticism. Yeah, I just want to understand like why. And so, dude, yeah, kills I, bigger bucks than me. So something I'm missing. Time. You know, <laughs> time, property, team 125. I, yeah, I would tell, hey, Adam, I said this to Bachman the other day. I was like, I hunted on a red mood last night. I didn't see shit. <laughs> yeah. What the hell, man? Now, given it was 86 <laughs> degrees when, when Strauss and I were out. My mood guy, I was like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> and delete the app. No, I, I am really curious to see as <clears throat> when we get into Adam's thought process here, because there is other factors than just the moon like obviously when strauss and i were hunting it was 85 degrees you know and i'm not moving if i'm a deer in a fall coat at that point so i think that there's there's things that we have to understand and that's we've heard it from people who have hunted in use like ben rising now we're going to take it from the guy who is the mind behind it so if if we can yeah i really want to i really want to i mean adam should be the guy to talk about i want to understand the nuts and bolts of how the moon mm-hmm. how he considers the moon and you know how the moon guide works so and we've bought it right so we have it yeah we have it so we're gonna at least reference it throughout the year and kind of try to understand what we're seeing 100 percent bring him in yeah all right hey adam good morning we were talking about uh <laughs> we're talking about starting our own team team 125 <laughs> <laughs> we're, well, co- we're coming for you, brother. Well, I, I think the, the just there, Adam, was that Jared and I are talking about it, and we're like, you know, obviously, for good reason, you set the name at Team 200, but that that's a high bar, man, in the white-toe world. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm curious, at what at what point where you're like, did, did you guys have the conversation of like, well, that deer's not 200 inches. <laughs> can, we shoot, can we shoot? I'm sure that conversation happened at some point, right? Yeah, but I mean, I didn't really, I didn't really start it, you know, to be a show about killing 200 inch deer. It was more about, you know, trying to harvest the most mature animal, mm-hmm. you know, where you're at. Yep. Yeah. You know, because a, a guy that's hunting down south that's killing 160, 160s consistently, you know, the biggest deer in his area is just as good as a hunter as, you know, anybody else. So yep. I think it's kind it's of, it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think 200 is, <clears throat> it's a it's a good name. I don't mean to poke fun at it. I think it's more than just a literal two hundred inches. Too like to me, it means like man, that is like that's the, the pinnacle, the pinnacle, or a metaphor of like the, the most mature, most dominant, you know, buck mm-hmm. that you could chase. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly where it is. I, I think you know. I guess first off, Adam, to kind of baseline it for for our listeners, um, how many gross two hundred inch deer have you killed? Four. Wow. That's awesome. Killed four. Yeah. <laughs> Had a couple slipped through the fingers. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I know when I have a mature buck slip through the fingers, that's one thing, but, uh, to have a 200 incher slip through the fingers, that's gotta be painful. What kind of slip are we talking? Like missed, hit, never saw. Um, well, I've got one that scores 197 that I don't mm. count, which I know a couple other guys would count that one. Yeah. He's got to score it again. I hit one up in the bow zone in Alberta probably 15 years ago that went 240 and we Ooh. never found him. Jeez. Oh, no. 
Yeah, that one. And then I, think, I think I've hunted um, three or four other ones that I didn't end up killing. Most recently was one in Illinois a couple of years ago that I had at uh, 10 yards and couldn't get a shot off at him. Wow, and a man. gun hunter, a gun hunter ended up killing him and he was like 231. Oh my word. So. Well, and I think that's the, it, we've kind of talked about this with other guests too, Adam, and, and obviously it is the pinnacle of what a whitetail hunter strives for dreams of. But, you know, ultimately you think about the number of places you've hunted, the number of deer you've hunted and like how rare it actually is to find a deer of that caliber. Yeah. Yeah. They're not on every farm. That's for sure. Yeah. It does seem, it does seem like there's probably more now than there ever was before just because everybody's practicing, you know, QDMA and yep. letting deer grow and, hmm. and uh, doing the, the most that they can to make their property and the deer on their property as big as they can be. So it's that's, sure that's got a lot to do with it. You know, we kind of hear, we heard that last week too from Don. Yeah. We hear that from, and then again, I've heard other people tell me that there aren't as many because of the attention that it's gotten and, and people that are maybe spending more time in the woods and, you know, instead of killing the first one-year-old or two-year-old they see, you know, now they're waiting for a three or four-year-old. And so it, let's, let's, I want to see if Adam's, uh, experience has been kind of, so we talked to Don Higgins as a founder of like real world wildlife seed, uh, yeah, last, know, Don. yeah last week. And he's killed a couple, couple, two hundreds, at least one that yeah, I'm aware two, of two or three, two or three. And, um, that was in Illinois as mm-hmm. well, which I know you do a lot of hunting out there, but his description of, um, trying to locate a 200 inch animal was basically that he's got. 30 different farms across mm-hmm. kind of the Midwest that he has permission to hunt over which he's running 50 or 60 cameras. And I think his breakdown was kind of like this across all of those farms, which I'm sure amount to thousands and thousands of acres. Um, that that's this past season. I think mm-hmm. he's got 30 or more 150 type animals. Um, he had six or seven booners. Less than that, five booners. Five booners. Mm -hmm. Gross booners. And he's got one mature 200 incher. No, no 200s. No No, 200s? Only one deer in that 170 class that would be a five or older. Oh, wow. The other ones were all four year olds. No booners. Or uh, I'm sorry, no 200s, no 180s. He said not even a deer close to 180 this year. I'm right sure, now. I'm sure the ratio would be comparable, though. So on a, on a good year, he may get lucky and have. 30 or more 150s, mm-hmm. five or six. 170 plus. 170 pluses, and then one or one 200 probably, yeah. maybe. One one like or it. none. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Well, um, my hat's off to him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, for that many farms, and, you know, Don's a great hunter, and I'm sure he's in really good areas. I mean, I... I probably don't run quite as many cameras as he does, but I mean, I'm hunting Ohio, Illinois, um, and Alberta this year. And I think of my three, those three spots, I've got maybe five deer that over 170 and two over 200 that I know of. Wow. Interesting. And I think it comes back, Adam, is that, um, again, you got to cover ground, right? And you got to cover ground in the right areas. It's like if I put out 40 cameras in Pennsylvania, like there's a chance I catch a 170 plus, 
but it's a lot lower than if I put 40 cameras in Ohio or Illinois or Alberta or something like that. So it's covering ground and then it's covering the right ground. And again, Jared and I beat this thing to death is, you know, frankly, just can't kill a big buck if he's not there. You know, so locating them is to me, the majority of the battle. I mean, it's, it's still hard to kill them once you locate them, but you know, if you're, especially if you're trying to attain a 170, 180, 200 class buck, like you got to find them first before you can kill one. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just climb up in a tree and hope a 200 inch deer is going to walk by. I mean, and it doesn't matter if it's a 200 or your first 125, you know, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're way ahead of the game. If you go out and find that animal first, yep. instead of just, you know, doing your thing and hoping it shows up. And that's, yeah, I've, I've preached that for 20 years to guys that aren't killing the kind of deer that they want to kill, but yet they just think they're going to show up. And you got to go out and find the animal that you want to kill first. And it puts you way ahead of the game, just knowing that he's there. I mean, when you know he's there, it makes you hunt harder. It makes you hunt smarter. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes everything that you do to the next level. Yeah. Other than that, you're just literally relying on pure luck that a deer of a caliber that you're looking for is on the property that you're hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the unluckiest guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got to go out and find them. Yeah. It seems like there's been a transition of, uh, like, like an older school of hunting, which I think my, my dad would even Mm -hmm. follow guys that were hunting like the, you know, 80s 90s 80s 90s and today mm-hmm. yeah the 80s and 90s it's really was it seems like trail cameras is what enabled hunters now to for sure understand other than you know back in the day some states allowed spotlighting or you could go out and just look glass. glass you know mm-hmm. and yeah but man what a game changer trail trail have you ever killed a 200 incher that like before trail cams were a, a thing like you kind of just went out read the sign maybe saw him on the hoof once or twice and ended up killing him yeah so my first my first 200 I killed in 99. I don't think we, I was running any trail cameras at all. My second one, I, I had a couple trail camera pictures of that deer. So yeah, the first one wow. was, was pre trail camera. Wow. So I guess I fall into that old school. <laughs> that about. Yeah. Well, you're of age. <laughs> uh, that's, that's crazy, man. Well, cause I know that was about the time that, um, so I guess I was, coming i was in high school at that time um how old are you adam how are you guys because none of you look like you're 40 and this is my 40th hunting i'll season. be i'll be thir- i'm 37 28 yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'll be 55 in january which is what my dad's 55 that's why you have four 200s and we have none so no, not even close to one <laughs> yeah yeah <not> close. <laughs> um I, so i guess adam i I really want to dive into the kind of the strategy once you locate one, because I think that's where we'll get into the moon guide stuff. But let, let's take a step back and look at, um, obviously, you got to find one first. So, you know, give us kind of the strategy from an Adam Hayes mindset of how do I find, like, how what, what's my process to even try to locate uh, a buck of that caliber? Well, like you said, you got to start where they're at, you know, obviously you're not going to go to Pennsylvania looking for a 200 inch deer, you know, you got to pick out. (laughs) Yeah. It ain't happening. (laughs) Shots fired. There may be, (laughs) there may be a needle in the haystack, but there isn't many of them. Yeah. We hear that. Have they killed, have they killed 200 inch deer? (sighs) Man, they killed a, I'm sure they have. They've killed a 190, um, just West of us a couple years ago, typical one nineties. I think they've killed one 200 that I know of in the last three or four years, but I mean, that's it. Very rare. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that's really where it starts, you know, and I've kind of been, um, I've kind of been fortunate that the areas that I, you know, started hunting man, 20 years ago are in those types of areas, you know, in Illinois and Kansas and up in Canada and obviously here in my home state, Mm -hmm. you know, really fortunate to grow up in an area that's got the kind of caliber deer that we have. So, but as far as actually getting out and finding them, you know, the, um, shed hunting, you know, in the, in the late winter Mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, glass in the bean fields in the summer are probably the two biggest things for me when it comes to finding them. Yep. And then obviously, you know, run, running as many trail cameras as I can on the properties that I know of, and then try to follow up on every lead I ever hear about from anybody on a big deer. Cause you just never know. I mean, yeah. everybody's idea of a big deer is different. Uh, yeah, very much so. We're aware. We just discussed it yeah. this morning. You know, some guy looks at it and says, man, I, you know, I saw a big eight point and you're like, you know, deer's not even 130, you know, and maybe it is big to them, but like, that's not our definition of big. Yeah. Um, that's, I, really, that's really where it starts for me. When you, when you talk about um, shed hunting and, and let's say even the bean field scouting, let's say you locate one, um, obviously not all the time you have permission on that. So now becomes the process of like, how do I get access to that property? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's getting to be the toughest part of the game anymore. I bet. Really? Yeah. Just getting permission. Yeah. And I mean, do you find that harder in a place like, um, Ohio or Illinois than Kansas, which is maybe more rural or, or cattle remote type places? Oh yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know how it could get much tougher than it is in Ohio for getting permission. And then that crazy, I mean, if, especially if you're saying that, you know, you're potentially seeing or have a chance at higher caliber deer than you used to, but yet, you know, trying to get access to some of these places is just so damn difficult. Yeah. You, you yeah, think that's, I'm sorry, Adam, go ahead. That? I was going to say, do you think, do you think that it's because, um, I guess my theory in Ohio anyways is, is one of two reasons. One seems like every single property is getting hunted. Every property that, that I know of, like somebody, either their nephew hunts or, you know, they go out and gun hunt it <clears throat> would be one. The alternative is people are just realizing the value of their land t- to hunters, um, you know, th- through agencies like base camp leasing or hunting lease network or just yeah. to hunters they know directly. They're like, I can make money off of this thing. So I'm going to, which, you know, you can't blame them for, but. Yeah, it's all of that. I actually I actually did some work um, with some leasing companies and did my own leasing 10 years ago. And it just uh, return on your time and investment just wasn't there, but mm-hmm. I, I did some figuring one time and I might be way off on this from my, my memory is not what it used to be, but I think I took the amount of acreage in Ohio and divided it by the number of hunters. And it came out to like, 30 to 50 acres per hunter. Wow. I mean, that's just, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of guys hunting anymore. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it comes back to, and and we've heard multiple people. In fact, Don um, on the last podcast actually said it, is that a lot of people believe that the biggest bucks that we will see harvested are going to come out of Ohio in the next several years, um, really? which is interesting to me because I do think compared to a Kansas or even an Iowa like there's a lot more hunting pressure. Um, and you know, Don's of the opinion as well as several others that 
you change one role, which is Ben was as well, baiting during the season, and you could create a big buck Mecca. What what are your and again not not putting you on the spot of like probating or or anti baiting but thoughts I guess around your home state of Ohio um, and baiting in general. Yeah, that's kind of a double edged sword. I mean, I like the fact that I can provide you know the nutrition that I need for the deer you know on my farms mm-hmm. year round to try to you know get them to that next level antler wise. Yep, but I mean baiting's all almost a necessary evil in Ohio anymore because if you're not doing it <laughs> all your neighbors are and they're going to be pulling your deer so you have to do it and what and a honestly, you do what a trend of everybody saying that and it, I feel the same in Kentucky where I've got property now that like if I my wife's like man you know she knows we we buy all just backgrounds and we manage the habitat and we do a lot of work on that but like she'll be like, man, you know, you're feeding a lot, and, you're, and I was like, listen, if, if I don't, those guys are, and they're gonna shoot every two and three year old that we got on this property. So, Adam, are you legitimately feeding like uh, pro, like protein pellets, or I guess when we say baiting, in most cases, it's just corn piles. But um, I do mainly just corn, you know, and some molasses and some other yes. you know attractants this time of the year. But I just stopped my. Um, uh, you know, my other program, which has got a lot higher protein, you know, mix in it. Mm-hmm. So while they're growing, I want them to have access to as much of it as I want, mm-hmm. as, as they want. And then obviously, uh, yeah, it's a different, it's a different mix while they're growing. Cause you're trying to give them, you know, all the protein and everything they need to, you know, grow the, grow the antlers as big as possible. Does, yep. it, does it seem like you've seen a, a difference since you started feeding that protein during the summer? You know, I've only been, I've only had my personal farm. This is the third year. So I haven't seen a big jump in antler size, but I have noticed more. Um, it seems like everything started getting a little bit more non-typical this year. Hmm. The fir- first year, everything was pretty clean and typical. And I noticed this out West with a guy that I used to work with that, two or three years into a feeding and mineral program, it was like everything started growing, you know, extra points and splits and kickers and drops. So I did kind of notice that this year. It seems like everything's got a little bit of extra stuff on their rack. Not huge, not huge jumps in size, but just throwing trash. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I think that, um, again, the kind of things that I look at when I'm, I guess feeding or supplemental feeding and is that I don't do it necessarily for that. I'm going to kill edge, especially with the mature buck. In fact, like I think it's really hard to kill mature buck on corn. Um, but I think that the attractiveness, we talked with Don about this in the past of keeping those two and three year olds as quote unquote safe as possible uh, because that's the deer that are getting killed, right? I mean, the, the reason we're losing some of our better quality files. mature bucks is the two and three-year-olds are the ones getting killed who two, three years from now on, are the, on, on corn piles. On is, corn is piles. The key to yep. <laughs> and so I think that's where, you know, you start to look at how can I influence this deer herd to the best of the ability? And it's like, you know, I'm uh, to your point, Adam, I feel like I'm kind of forced to feed because if I don't, there's no way in hell I'm going to keep those deer on my property and safe. Yep. yep. You, you got to do everything you can. I mean, I've got two feeders going. I've got probably, 
one, two, three. I've got like six different, you know, plots with white, different Whitetail Institute products out there, mm-hmm. mineral year round. I put in, um, you know, I'm starting an orchard. I put in eight fruit trees this year, and I'm probably going to put another eight in, in in the in the spring. So, just trying to get um, everything I possibly can in here, so that a deer, you know, in or around my farm has no reason to leave. Sure. You know, when it comes when it comes to food, anyway. Yep. Dude, my problem with baiting is it, I would be one of those guys that's probably all for for banning it. As much as I enjoy the benefits of getting pictures over corn, mm-hmm. stuff is so freaking hard to hunt. I just, I hate the way that it manipulates deer movement. Um, it, it's almost like, how can I put out corn piles or, or a feeder to hold deer and not hunt them? Yeah. Like Makes it's, sense. It's just like, I, I don't know how you do that. I, I think that if you can figure that out, it would be to your advantage because killing a deer, a mature deer on a corn pile is, I just, Adam, this past weekend was hunting a, like probably a high fifties buck that showed up about a week ago, which by the way, Jed talked to the neighbor and the neighbor's like, is it? Yeah. He's like, I have had that buck all summer and he right. left mid September that like the day he lost him is Moved when over he, to your he showed up on us yep. and he was there in daylight every day for like a week. And then, you know, I go in to hunt him and, I've failed at this before, so I'm being extra thoughtful and and um, cautious about where I think he's betting and and how I can hunt um, a specific wind. And so for like the third or fourth year in a row, it's like I, I failed at that. Just never saw him, mm-hmm. and then he disappeared for a day or two, and I'm just absolutely sure that he smelled us. Um, and I just they're they're so stinking hard to hunt. I just don't. Well, know. I think that's it. I mean, it, the people who have never, um, I guess, hunted over corn or bait or whatever you want to say like they automatically say well yeah like i i don't understand how you don't kill a giant buck you every year you, in states like kansas you can because it's freaking it's flat and sure. you know they just it's still hard though i mean they still it's hard get nocturnal on it and it's not just, as hard as ohio though no i would agree with that yeah during <clears throat> during kansas still act like deer are supposed to yeah yeah 100 yeah. percent. that's it for now, at least, you know, the worry is like, we didn't draw this year in Kansas for the, for me, it was the first time in seven years, basically. And it, you know, I you, didn't draw either. First time in 18 years, I didn't draw. Kansas. I assumed you didn't when you said you weren't hunting this year. So. And it, I, I, again, I get it. Like you can't, can't hunt it every year because obviously then eventually it depreciates in the deer quality. But like you look at the amount of people who applied for hunting and it makes me nervous yeah, for that state. Kansas isn't even very good hunting. I don't know why people are applying. Yeah, stop applying. Like, uh, you could go plenty of places. Like, come to Pennsylvania and hunt. It's awesome and over the counter. Yeah, like, I've heard New Hampshire is awesome. <laughs> Everybody should start putting in. Uh, I continue to blame Chris B for this whole Kansas debacle. It's of definitely a giant his fault. Walk in. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> but it, it is. It's, it is interesting that you say that. So, we hunt the southeast part of, of Kansas, Adam. And, um, yeah, it's first time since I started applying in Kansas uh, that I didn't get drawn. And and I looked at the number of applicants in the unit that I apply for, and it was double what it normally is. Really? Yeah. And that I haven't drawn twice in five years. Yeah. I blame you for the bad luck. Yeah. This year and two years ago. And then last year sucked. Cause you it, said first time in 18. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You putting in for Iowa at all? Yeah. Yep. I think I've got, I think I've got my second or third point this year. So yeah, we did the same. We should be getting close. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess the other one you name is Alberta, uh, obviously with border open back up and opportunities there. Um, do you feel that this year could be the best possible year up there with having less pressure from U.S. residents recently? Well, <clears throat> nobody got to hunt up there last year except for, you know, Canadians. So yep. You sure would think that <laughs> the majority of the deer that would have got killed by guys coming up from the U.S. all made it one more year. And from what I've heard, the winter wasn't uh, really bad. So, yeah, it could be it could be a super year up there this fall. Interesting. I wonder what percentage of uh, Canadian whitetail harvests are by American citizens. But definitely majority. I bet it's a really? chunk. Yeah. Majority of all Canadian whitetail harvests? Yeah, that's I, incredible. I think that's. I mean, they're they're relatively low harvest to begin with in in a lot of those areas. Can Canadians go and just like draw a like a, a tag like we can here in the United States? No, I'm not sure. I'm Do you know, so. I know. I think it, isn't it the policy from a U.S. standpoint that you basically have to have I don't know if you call it semi guide at least, but you have to have somebody take you as a uh, U.S. resident to hunt. Like we can't just go over the border and start hunting somewhere. I think for the most part. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's definitely regulated to some level. Yeah. How many, how many hunters are there in Pennsylvania? About many. Well, almost 800,000. <laughs> almost 800,000. Yeah. You know how many hunters there are in Canada? Mm -mm. 1.3 million. Wow. So like Pennsylvania and West Virginia, that's about it. Yeah. Not even that we'd be over the top probably. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, and there yeah. you go. I mean, look at the amount of area that you've got. Um, you it's, know, it's definitely on our, our radar. Jeremy and I have talked a few times about going to Canada and yeah, it just, uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I think at some point we, we'd like to try something that's really appealing as we've seen some of the, I don't know if it's Saskatchewan, uh, where they offer the mule deer hunts. In the, in the morning and whitetail hunts in the afternoon. You can't hunt, uh, non-residents can't hunt mule deer in Saskatchewan. I don't okay. believe they ever have been. I think it's be Alberta. Alberta. You can in Alberta, but yeah. not Saskatchewan. Yeah, I think it's Alberta. Must be Alberta, but that sounds pretty appealing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the, the thing that we've looked at, um, Adam, I guess recently is, again, kind of like a Kansas is, you know, it's, it's, not rocket science, like find the areas that have good quality food, but also have lower hunting pressure and you're likely to have older and bigger bucks. Right. And so, you know, even up until last year, now that we went for mule deer, you know, the Dakotas has been one that's kind of flown under the radar, especially Western Dakotas to where, you know, we, we saw one deer that was easily in the one eighties, um, last year there, you know, and it, again, few and far between, but if you want to kill big caliber deer, it goes back to this whole location discussion of you got to find them first, right? I mean, you got to find where these deer are going to be at. Yes, you do. Let's talk man. Yeah. Yep. I'm curious. Um, I guess, Adam, can you just kind of, uh, we don't need like a, a pitch necessarily, but can you just kind of just start as if we know nothing about the moon, which is pretty true. <laughs> And just kind of just start to explain to us about different moon phases and, you know, ultimately why the moon guide works and, and how you use that for, for hunting applications. And forgive us if we jump in and stop if we have questions. That's probably the biggest misconception is that the moon guide really doesn't have anything to do with the phase of the moon. Interesting. You know, it, it's all about the position of the moon in the sky because 
I'm sure you guys have heard about the overhead and underfoot moon. Yep. So that's that's basically when the moon's either straight up or straight down. Okay. But every day as the moon rotates around the earth, those are the two times every day where it's actually closest to mm-hmm. the earth. Yep. And it has the most gravitational pull. I mean, that's what triggers the tides. You know, it moves 100%. the oceans. It's so strong. Yep. So the, the key to the moon guide and what I've been following the last 20 years is that you only have a handful of days every month where that overhead or underfoot moon peaks at prime time in the morning or the evenings. Okay. You know, most, most of your deer herd is going to be moving the, the first and last hour of daylight every day, regardless. You know, 100%. Your does, yep. Fawns and mature bucks. When you're hunting a specific animal, you know, a big mature buck, and you're trying to trying to stack the deck in your favor on when am I going to go in to hunt this stand to have my best chance of catching that deer making a mistake during daylight. There's three things that I look at. The first one is is the moon. You know, I want I want that overhead or underfoot moon peaking within a couple hours of sunset, you know. I want that deer to have every reason to get up just a little bit early. And that's really all it is. It's a natural instinctive, if you want to call it an urge, a push, whatever. I mean, they can sense that gravitational pull just like they can sense barometric pressure, Yep. you know, and changes in the weather. Mm-hmm. It's just something that, you know, they normally want to get up and move, you know, right before dark but an older mature deer is probably more likely just to stay put until dark, just to be safe. But when he's got that extra push from that gravitational pull peaking at prime time, when he wants to get up and move anyway, it's just, like I said, it's just another natural instinctive factor that, that can help that deer or make that deer get up and move just a little bit early. Yep. Makes sense. If I can just get caught up here, I want to make sure fundamentally I understand how the moon is is rotating around the Earth. So it's not necessarily circular; it's more ovular. And so you're saying yeah. it two, elliptical two times during the day, every day. There are points where the moon is closest to the Earth, and that's the overhead and underfoot moon. Yep, that's overhead close, and underfoot. Okay, it's, it's closer to the Earth than any other time of the day at those two times. Interesting. When it's straight up and straight down. Yep. And then you also said on a monthly basis, there are several days every month that, that what is occurring exactly? So it's, it's a cycle, you know, the, those overhead and underfoot moon times change about an hour every day. They get about an hour later every day. Okay. So every couple of weeks you get that little window of opportunity when it's actually straight up or straight down overhead or underfoot at prime time. Gotcha. Within like early morning uh, or late I afternoon see. activity. So a few days every month, those overhead and underfoot overlap cycles are correlating with evening and morning times, like on hun- yeah. preferred times. Now the way it'll the way it'll hit is it'll it'll peak, and it doesn't matter if it's the overhead or underfoot, but it'll peak. Um, we just came off the first red moon of. Um, yep, we were watching it. Of season. <clears throat> And you'll get a four or five day window when it's peaking in the evening, right around sunset. Mm-hmm. You know, and those are those are the evenings that you're going to want to be right on the field edge because those deer are going to be up out of their beds early, back in the timber, moving to the food sources early. So 
you know, I always suggest that on those red moon nights, you're right on the edge of the food. You don't want to be, you know, back in the timber, taking a chance on bumping deer. And then right after that happens, it kind of flips over to morning. So you'll have four or five evenings where it's really good. Mm -hmm. And then it flips over to the morning. You know, if it's daylight at seven o'clock, you want an overhead or underfoot moon that peaks somewhere between seven and say 10 o'clock after, after sunrise, because those are going to be your best chances of catching a mature deer coming back to bed just a little bit late. Just a little later. Yep. I hardly ever hunt mornings early season because it's so tough to beat a mature deer back to his bed when he's on a strict feeding pattern. Yep. Or to walk through those destination food sources to get where you're going. Right. But if I've, if I've tried to kill him in the evenings and I can't get it done and I know where he's bedding, maybe I even have a, a stand pre-hung in his bedding area mm-hmm. and I'm going to take a chance to kill him on a morning hunt. I'm going to wait until I have that, you know, overhead or underfoot moon just after daylight. Got it. Is either one of those preferred overhead or underfoot or would you say they're the same? <clears throat> well, Jeff Murray was the one that created the moon guide back in the nineties. And, um, you know, I, I took it over from his family after he passed away. Okay. And Jeff <clears throat> wrote in his book that the overhead moon is stronger because it's closer. You know, it's not on the other side of the planet, but I've paid attention to both of them for 20 years and I give them both equal attention, honestly. Gotcha. And so the term red moon, is that just referring to uh, those coordinating cycles we were talking about? So those few days out of every month when your overhead underfoot cycles are coordinating with the times of the days you want to be hunting, those are what you're calling a red moon. Yeah, those are the best days. Yeah, the red moon. Got it. Is that also called like a hunter's moon? Is that the, I've heard that as well. No, it's, it's all different. <clears throat> I think, I think Jeff actually mentioned it a couple of times um, in his book, but I've really pushed it and promoted it to help guys understand, you know, that you, you get that little window of opportunity and, and red moon just kind of stuck, but that's really what it is. It's that handful of days where mm-hmm. everything is perfect, you know, gotcha. and that's your, that's your red moon. It's not because the moon's red or, you know, gotcha. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it, other stuff it's it's well uh, that's super helpful to hear because honestly i just didn't know so i I was like i've never seen it be red yeah (laughs) so i guess adam if we kind of just isolate that first um piece there are other people who look at moon effects on maybe not just deer movement but obviously rutting activity and things like that uh charlie alzheimer was one of those guys that that would do that so in in i guess in theory and i'm sure there's some overlap but what those guys are uh, laying out there or theorizing is different than what the red moon and the moon guide have laid out, correct? Yeah, in November is 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 a completely different story because of the rut and breeding. You know, things can happen any time of the day. Sure. And you know, I spent, like I said, this is my going to be my fortieth season. So I spent the first twenty years of my career hunting. You know, reading what you know, Alzheimer talked about yep. and everybody else in the magazines about the different phases of the rut, you know, are they, is it, um, chasing, are they yep. seeking, are they locked down? You know, the juries have got their 13, uh, mm-hmm. whatever, everybody's got their own ideas about it. I actually struggled with the rut for a long time, part, partly because I'm, I've been hunting specific deer every year for so long. 
and normally I've done before November, but now that I'm hunting other states, um, I really struggled killing big deer consistently during November because that's that's the time of the year when they're the least predictable, least sure. consistent. You can hardly get any kind of pattern on them. Yeah, you know, trying to figure out what phase of the rut it is, what they're doing. Honestly, when I just threw all that out the window, forgot about trying to figure out what phase of it is, and just solely concentrated on daylight activity. When is the best time of of the day to catch deer moving? And it really goes back to that moon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a hundred percent. Nothing is. There's sure. nothing definite about chasing and hunting big deer. But if you focus on your best chance every day of when deer are going to be moving, that's what that moon time is all about. So in November, you know, I don't focus as much on those morning and evening hunts with the red moon. I'm more focused on those peak activity times every day. Which makes sense. So if that, if the moon is overhead or underfoot at midday, you better be in your stand at midday back in the timber you know, not on the field edge, but back in the timber, hunting the bedding areas, hunting the uh, travel corridors and transition zones between bedding areas. You know, you've got to adjust accordingly, you know, your stand sites as to when those deer are going to be moving. So, you know, on those days where that moon's peaking midday, I might not even hunt the mornings and evenings. I might just hunt that 10 to 2 window, or those are great days to sit all day. Interesting. I think you just said it right there, but I want to clarify so you believe or you've observed that um deer movement is at its greatest at those overhead and and underfoot moon times regardless of time of year i guess it's okay interesting you ever be driving down the road middle yeah. of the day yes. there's deer out everywhere 100 percent. what the hell is going on yeah you know and you can i see it here in my backyard because i i get deer you know coming through my yard all day long, you know, and it's funny how, when you see them, how it correlates to that overhead or underfoot moon. And you can see the same thing with like cows, Yeah, you know, you drive by and they're all laying down, nothing's feeding them. Then you go by a couple hours later in the afternoon, they're all up feeding and they're even feeding on those times. Well, that's, what's been frustrating for me in our conversations with, um, there's been a handful of guys who have conducted or been a part of these, um, deer movement studies that say there is no data that supports deer movement against overhead or, mm-hmm. or underfoot. Like they can't identify it, but they also don't seem to have, and I've observed that as well. I think all of us have looked out at one thirty in the afternoon. And it's like that field's full of deer like what's going on mm-hmm. they don't seem to have an, an answer unless i missed it like did those guys have what is the reason for that if not the moon no and i i think a lot um well first of all t- the i think the big thing to clarify for our listeners is two different things right Ver- the moon uh guide and looking at the overhead or underfoot versus moon phase right two two very different we're saying moon there. phase is irrelevant completely well not no because you're um your full moon and new moon are never going to peak at prime time in the evenings. Let me make sure I'm getting this straight. Yeah, me too. It's a lot to think about. <laughs> well, it is. And I mean, that's that's the whole point of having Well, here would be this, this secondary or subsidiary uh, observation the, is that yeah. we feel in, in a new moon situation, we see more daylight movement as opposed to full moon seems like they move more after dark. Yeah. Right. The, uh, the red moon is always the red moon's always going to hit right around that you know the the quarter moons quarter moons. If you, if you really had to focus on the phase, mm-hmm. 
that red moon is always going to be like a quarter moon. It's never a, a full moon or a new moon. So, okay. I, I think on a research side, and, and this is one where we'll probably get with Bronson because he's got data that we can manipulate essentially to appeal to, the, is that um, a lot of times when they're looking at a, a group of mature bucks or even a specific buck, they're looking at it at a deviation from what his normal movement is, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just say this deer on average moves, whatever, X hundred yards per day. I think when they do this, and this is just speculation, right? But when they do these analysis, maybe that deer doesn't necessarily move more, but where he goes is different, right? So maybe he's moving like that buck we saw last night on Illinois camera, a deer moved a bunch in a 20 yard, 30 yard square area. Mm -hmm versus linear to a food and back. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he's not necessarily moving more, but where he could be visible more to a hunter at least may change with the moon. Well, so the the moon guide, it sounds like points to specific expected movement. It does. To say, hey, when the moon is doing this, hunt Feeding, these types of yep. areas. Field edge, bedding. I, I know, Adam, we're not ever going to get to a, when the moon is doing this, he's doing exactly, I know that doesn't yeah. exist. Um, but it is opti optimum times to hunt. That's what we're looking for, right? Yep. Adam, Adam, can we see, can we see above you there real quick? I was trying to tilt my screen to see if you could see it. I saw it for a split second while we were walking in. Mm. Oh, wow. Holy cow, dude. Hammers. Velvet one in there too. How many deer are up there? I think uh, 20 some. Oh. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Thus this conversation. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Sorry about that, but my eyeballs were floating. No. <laughs> yeah, we were in the same same boat. Don't worry about it. Um, okay, so let, let's get let's get back online here. So <clears throat> are we cool, Colton? We're good to run. All right. Yep. Um so we've got this in terms of position of moon, uh, overhead, underfoot. That obviously, when when Jared and I were saying, basically telling you kind of where to be, we're looking at the app, and obviously based on timing of those positions, it's going to say, hey, you need to be on the field edge, you should be in bedding area. So like when you're saying that 10 to 2 time frame in the middle of the day, obviously that's usually going to say be close to bedding. Close to the bedding area or in those... Um you know, those travel corridors between the bedding areas. Cause if you think about if a buck in November is not with a doe, what's he doing? He's going to be checking as many does as he can. So he's going to be going from bedding area to bedding area yep. and using those, you know, travel corridors to get from one to the next. So, yeah. And obviously on an individual side, let, let's, let's look at it from a rut to what we all just talked about. Like it is the most inconsistent, unpredictable time frame. That said, if you have a position moon overhead or underfoot uh, around midday, then obviously that could be a great day to sit all day during the rut because there's likely peak movement in the middle of the day and it's the rut. It could happen at any time type of thing. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I've actually had my best luck if you want to talk about November and, you know, if a guy was going to pick, try to pick the best time to go, when that when that uh, moon peaks, you know, from sunrise till maybe you know noon, it just seems like those mornings have been. I've seen more big deer on those days when that moon is peaking just after daylight. Hmm. 
Interesting. I don't, it's just they're up moving late. You yeah. know, they're checking those. And on those mornings where it's peaking anywhere from, like I said, sunrise to 10 or 11 o'clock, man, those they I'll seem take to be that day in November over anything else. Which, how far out can you look at them? I mean, the moon phase, can you look out like a year or two years in advance and say, here, here's when the red moons are going to be? You can. Um, the app only gives you sure a year at a time information, yep. but I mean, this information is something that you can look at months or years in advance. I mean, you mm -hmm. can't predict if you're trying to plan your hunt for next year, you know, or if you're trying to plan it a few months in advance for your uh, vacation from work or whatever, the yep. moon's really the only thing that you can, you know, Count look on. at. It's we know that. Yeah. That far in advance. So why wouldn't you? I mean, it's really about stacking the deck in your favor. Yep. You know, when you're trying to kill a big deer, you got to do everything you can. So why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you look at that? Yeah. Why wouldn't you look at the moon and what it's doing and, and plan around that? I think that's an important piece because I know one thing that we've kind of looked at now that we've gotten uh, turned on to what well, Ben Rising was the guy who kind of put us in, in tune with the red moon and stuff is we've kind of gone back to some of the deer we either harvested or some of the encounters that we've had in past years and tried to correlate those with with red moons. And, and some of those have fallen into that that time frame, whether we knew it or not. Um, yeah. Well, guys, when I'm talking to guys and they're skeptical about it. Yep. Usually all I got to do is say, OK. Give me the dates, you know, when you've killed your biggest deer, or if you had a deer that you couldn't get a daylight picture of, and you finally did give me those dates and times. And I'll show you on the moon guide where it was most of the time it was spot on. And that's, you know, that's, that's the light bulb moment for most guys when they start looking at that historical data. Probably the biggest struggle for like a skeptic from my end or, uh, you know, from somebody who's promoting it, like from your end is that it's not, and I think we both admit it's not the only variable. Like there's so oh, many no. other things that have to, the deer has to be there. First of all, you know, you still mm -hmm. want it correlating with a weather pattern. You, you still have to be able to draw your bow back and, and shoot accurately to, <laughs> to kill that thing. Also, but there's, yeah. there's a hundred yeah. other things that have to go right for you to kill that animal. But you know, so I think it's, that's, that's all it is. It's like, mm -hmm. man, is, is that the variable that's making the difference? I it's think, like in a recipe. It's like, man, is that garlic really the yeah. thing that like brought it home for me? You know, there's, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, killing a big deer, but obviously if you've found your deer, you know, where he's at, you've done your scouting, you know, where you need to be, where you think you need to be to kill him. You got your stands pre-hung. So how do you, how do you, you know, it's all about predicting what he's going to do before he ever does it. Right. Sure. And yep. being there when he makes that mistake. Yeah. So is there a way to actually predict when he's going to make that mistake? And factors like the moon, the wind, the weather, you know, those, any one of those factors can make that deer get up and move early. Mm -hmm. It's when you start combining two yeah. or three of those on the same evening that yep. shit gets bloody. I yep. agree. <laughs> shit gets bloody. Yeah. For, for for that reason, I feel like the, the biggest thing working against the moon guide right now, or that could work in your favor if you, if you pursued something like this, is that at least the guys that we've talked to, I don't know if there are other biologists that see it differently, but like these studies are showing that there is no correlation between uh, the overhead and underfoot moons and deer movement. And that's like literally the ticket to this thing working. So 
I mean, if you know whether it would be you you partnering with a, a university or some way doing a deer study that showed because that would be that would be it for me to if and I'm not saying that I believe either one way or the other, but if if there was a study that showed overhead and underfoot. I think it's also do correlate with deer movement. Then yes, obviously that combined with here's, here's my study. I already <laughs> did my study. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. And, and I agree. I think, and again, I don't know. Right. Cause I haven't been involved in these research and I'm a research guy by background. Right. I, and this is no knock against research, but it's one of the reasons I got into it is there are a lot of researchers. Bronson's not one of them. And, and that's why he's on our podcast a lot, but there are a lot of researchers who frankly don't understand shit about hunting, right? Sure. Just frankly don't understand well, hunting. And, and in fairness, Adam, the reason we have to acknowledge it is there are some guys with, you know, freak, freaky walls like yours, Ben, ben, ben Rising being yeah. the other one, that absolutely swear by the moon. And so we we have to at least acknowledge it. There, there is it, something to it. I think we're really... I would, like, I would like somebody to show me a, a research study done just on mature deer... Okay. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, four, five, six, seven year old bucks. And just during the months of September, October, November, December. Yep. If somebody wants to do that kind of study just on mature animals and show how that compares to the moon guide. That's what I'd like to see. Cause well, I've never seen a study that's done. They haven't solely on mature bucks during hunting season. It's always all the deer in an area yep. all year long. And you know, as well as I do, that a mature buck is going to act differently in October than he does in August. Yep. You know? And I think that's where it comes back to, and again, I'm not knocking all these researchers and stuff because I'm part of that community. It, there are a lot of them who don't comprehend what matters to some hunters versus all hunters, right? So if they're saying, well, listen, you know, buck movement doesn't change. Well, they're just saying, well, you're a hunter. Like you just want to kill a buck. And it's like, no, no, no. I want to kill a mature buck and I need him to be analyzed during the hunting season. I don't give a shit what he does in March. Well, I think that's a super fair question is like, we, we should seek out the- Bronson's the, the guy to do it. Well, the specifics of the study. So I know they did a study and I think that at least- uh, a portion of the variables overlap, but I don't know if it's exactly what Adam is requesting that I would also want to see mature buck movement between the months of October, November. Well, and December. keep in mind a lot of the research that was done, although some of it was overhead and underfoot, I don't, I don't know the details of that. What most of them have really analyzed. That's important though. Also what it's, what exactly they're looking at. Is it the phase or that's is it what specifically it is. overhead or underfoot? Most people, most research has overanalyzed the shit out of moon phase and its effects on the rut. That is, that is the number one thing. Like when I've written articles in the past, which of, is stupid. I think most people think that that's like hogwash. I don't think it is. Unfortunately, I think that if you look at most people and I'm not, bad mouthing any of the guys especially guys like charlie alzheimer who have done tons of years of research i don't around. know who that is <laughs> so he was kind of the 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 godfather around the moon phase and the rutting activity and godfather. the phases of the rut okay right and charlie since passed on he was a big contributor of deer and deer hunting and when i wrote there okay and i wrote an article that basically said you know it's bullshit and it's not to put charlie down it's just simply the data doesn't support that moon phase and rutting activity are connected different is can position of the oh sure position of the moon affect deer movement i don't care if it's it's just period during the well hunting that's one season. thing i like about the moon guy and what adam is saying here's i think like rutting deer are rutting deer and sure evenings are evenings and cold fronts are cold fronts all of those things can happen independently of 
the moon. But when they overlap, you know, it seems like the chances are increased of, of a sighting. Yep. yep. Am I right yeah. about that? Yeah. Anytime that you can combine multiple factors that are going to influence yeah. a deer to be active, obviously. I hear a lot of guys say that, you know, the, the weather trumps the moon. And you know what? Sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. But my biggest buck I've ever killed and my biggest deer I shot in Illinois last year both i killed them on the red moon when it was unseasonably warm i mean 75 80 degrees these big bucks are out you know with their thick winter coats on moving in 80 degree weather two hours before dark and there's no reason for them to be doing that <laughs> yeah and i think that's the stuff where that's what i love about deer hunting so much there's so many things that people can point to and be like that's the reason that's why i did yeah. it and like so here, I'll give you a real world example, and it's not necessarily something I've personally done, but Strauss and I were around it. So we've got uh, as close to a 200-incher that I've had on camera oh, last year in Columbus. Is. Send Adam that picture. He's 200 yeah. inches. And so again, hoping this deer, I've got pictures of him in January, so I assume he made it through, but we'll see. And so anyways, Adam, we basically, um, the guy that leases the property took all of the camera data and observational data that we had on this deer. And we've, we actually had quite a bit. Where was it? Where was your camera? In a bedding area? Uh, we had all over. Bedding feed. You've got pictures of him in multiple cameras? Multiple cameras, yep. And right. we've seen him. So what we did is we basically... You saw him? John did. Oh, wow. Yep. And so we took all of that data and we said, okay, how do these times and dates compare to Red Moon, right? Of which I think 30 to... Oh, no, 40%. 40% of the sightings happened within the Red Moon time period 75% of the sightings happened within plus or minus one day of the red moon. Okay. Why? I don't, you know, I don't know. So combined almost a hundred percent of movement was within a day, within of, a day of red moon. <clears throat> Just curious, not to backtrack. What is the cutoff to say this is qualifies as a red moon or not? There, there's no black and white on when it, you know, when it, um, starts and stops. Um, I think when we, we actually changed the formula a little bit for the app, as opposed to the dial, just because the way we pull the information off an API, you've got to have a set of standards yep. to go by yep. to pull that information and create the red moon. But I think, I think what it was, was three and a half hours before sunset to an hour after sunset was kind of like that. Got window. it. Gotcha. Yep. About as close as you can and get. It, just, because I've, I, just because I've been following it for so long and paying attention to it, I've seen that, you know, those deer on, on, the, on the evenings where that moon is peaking at prime time, those deer could be up moving two or three hours earlier than normal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and you're not just talking about the the mature buck you're trying to kill. You also got to think about the does and the fawns and the immature bucks that are going to be up moving early that you got to get past, Yep. you know, before those big animals come out. So, yeah. And so, you know, again, I'm not saying one way or the other, but it just so happened. That was what we looked at. Now, could there be other compounding factors, weather, wind, humidity, whatever? for sure. Like there absolutely is, but I mean, again, you've got to, there's no other way to isolate this stuff to Adam's point, like, and I wish we could, but I mean, 
How do you isolate that variable? Is how you're getting yeah, it? weather yeah. especially has destroyed more hunts than it's made hunts, in my opinion. Like when we go to Kansas every year, it's like, oh, we're going to third week. That's just because that's how it works and work schedules and everything else. And it seems like good. To, it's 80 degrees. We're screwed. I have a date for you. We're screwed. It doesn't, it just, that's just, it just kills any movement that we start to see. Now, could there be some red moon aspects that would get those deer in their feet? Absolutely. But also if it's 80 degrees in late November, like it's just going to suppress deer movement usually. Just how it yeah, is. The, uh, the week where I was in Kansas, where I killed my 219, um, it was 80 degrees all week long. You know, I show up and it's like a heat wave. So I know it's going to be, you know, difficult hunting that week. And Check yeah, that date. Well, activity so- was suppressed all week. And that deer, uh, like I said, that deer came out two hours before dark when it was 75, 80 degrees right on the red moon. So, so a, a couple of things, Jared just gave me one picture. I'm going to check. The other one is obviously last night, um, around three 30 central time, we got a mature buck into an area right in front of our camera where he was active, active, active Seven thirty, He starts to leave okay. that area. According to the moon guide, uh, in that area of Illinois, uh, yesterday was a red moon with 7.43 p.m. being being a transition area or field edge. Okay. That would align to that deer, right? One for one. One for one. For one. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, I mean, I don't know how else, frankly, to, to gut check some but of this stuff. This, uh, this picture here correlated with, I had like five shooter bucks on camera, like more than I've seen the entire year. I believe, in fact, I know that that's tied tightly to the weather front that the move through. But I'm just curious to see if there also was a, a red moon correlation within Do one. Do you remember that big front we had come through like a week and a half ago? Within two weeks one ago. day. So the the yeah. two days early for our season. Technically, by I don't, I don't care what the moon's doing. If it's hot out and all of a sudden you get a cold front, yeah. you're going to be up and hundred percent. And I think that's the thing. Like a lot of guys are going to look into this thing and they're going to say, "Well, yeah, I mean, but if it's a cold front, like they're going to move." Nobody's saying that that's not going to get deer moving. We're just saying from a predictability side. What we're all we're doing here is acknowledging you're within a day is acknowledging like the upstream swim you have to basically prove that the red moon is is a big factor yeah. what's that we're within and, a day mm-hmm. okay and on on a day where it might not be a red moon that doesn't mean that i'm sitting at home watching tv <laughs> because it's not a red moon i mean <laughs> well and frankly we, that was we we sympathize with your with you know the the struggle that you have to communicate because it's like i could say i hunted the other day on a red moon and i didn't see shit <laughs> Well, yeah. and, and, and I mean, I've drilled Ben Rising on this before. It's like, well, yeah, you were sitting on a whatever. Well, because he'll say, like, I've I've killed all my deer on a red moon. And I'll be like, like yeah, well, you only hunt red moon. You only day. hunt red moon. So, like, <laughs> so it, it, it makes sense, right? Now, given if we're kind of the three of us, Ben Rising, we're kind of a little bit abnormal here because if there's a front or we have a little bit flexibility to hunt, most guys, they have to book a week of vacation, right? That's just the way it works. And so... I guess to Adam, to your point, it's like you, you're not necessarily going to predict the weather in early November when it's the beginning of September, right? So what well, can dude, you do? You, you just you can't ever narrow it down a hundred percent because the alternative is I can hunt every single day, and if I do that, you're just going to pressure deer. Sure. And so you've got the the flip side of it is that. Yeah. I think that's the toughest part of killing big deer for most guys is actually not hunting those deer until everything's right. I agree. Like I was saying, if it's not a red moon, that doesn't mean I'm at home. I'm still out hunting or I'm still out scouting or I might be in an observation stand 300 yards away from that spot where I know I need to be to kill him trying to, 
you know, figure out another piece of the puzzle. I'm still out there hunting, but when you're on a specific animal and, you know, everybody knows the first time you hunt a tree stand is going to be your best time. So why would you go in and burn that stand out before you got everything in your favor lined up for that deer to get up and move early? Yeah. It's just, it's like gambling, dude. You're just taking chances, essentially risk versus reward. Like that buck that I hunted this past weekend is on a property that I have permission on. He just had showed up the week before he was daylighting every day on a bait pile that was dwindling by the day. Right. So eventually that Mm -hmm. corn, that corn pile is going to go away and that spot is going to dry up. And so I'm basically looking at a weather pattern that's unchanging. It's decent. To be honest, I didn't really look at the moon. I think you had mentioned like we were, it was a red moon day. One of those was. Yeah. And the wind was not perfect. It was sketchy. Um, But I kind of looked at that like, hey, I've got this weekend to give this deer a try on this corn pile. And after that time is up, like that corn pile is going to go away. This deer might move on to a different piece and I'll have other opportunities to hunt that deer, but not at this specific situation. So, so I decided to try it and, you know, like so many other times when you're hunting corn piles, it just didn't work out. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying that I shouldn't have tried that. It just didn't work out. Yeah. So Adam, I I guess we kind of rabbit hole there, but that's part of it. (laughs) Obviously, you you said that there were three factors. One of those factors is looking at this moon overhead or underfoot within, you know, a period close to uh, what wouldn't typically be deer peak activity. For the first time ever, I feel like I understand what the red moon is. So thank you you for that. You got that. Well, I guess what are some of these other factors that you're looking at? Uh, The wind obviously is probably the most important to me anyway. And you know, when I quit hunting <clears throat> the winds that were good for me and started hunting the winds that are good for the deer I'm after, my success changed dramatically. Interesting. And a lot of guys say, what are you talking about? How do you hunt a wind when it's good for the buck you're after? You know, you got to find somewhere along a big deer's travel pattern where you can get within bow range of him while he's using the wind to his advantage. He's about to prove my point for why hunting corn piles is so freaking difficult. Yep. And those, those spots, you know, you're actually splitting hairs most of the time. Yep. You know, ozonics, I think actually trademarked the killer wind phrase which that's exactly what it is. It's a killer wind where that buck is doing everything right. You know, he's either moving into the wind or using a crosswind. He's using that wind to his advantage to, to see or to smell what he can't see. And, you know, what else is going to make a big deer feel more comfortable than when he's using the wind? Mm-hmm. So agreed. And, and they like do a light bulb moment for me. Why not just give him the wind that he wants to feel comfortable enough to move? Yeah. I just got to find the spot where I can get within bow range of him while he's doing it, which is not the easiest task in the no. world. You know, it's a, it's a weak spot. Yep. It's a weak spot in his travel corridor where you can get, you know, That's within so 40 critical, 50 yards of him. and it's without fail too, Adam. How many times have we been sitting in a stand and we were like, my wind's going here. You're like, oh, I just need him to come from this direction. I just never does that. Yeah. I mean, he you're not going to will, will the deer into that area. And those spots I think are, can be tougher to identify or to bank on because you're like, well, the action is, is up here. You know, that's where I need to be, but you just need to have confidence in that and how a buck is going to mm-hmm. use his nose to be downwind of that activity. 
That's where yeah. I've killed most of my mature bucks is understanding their movements and and realizing that he's not going to change his movement unless it's with the wind and then me playing off of that, which is why hanging hunts probably have been my most successful tactic because it's the first time I go in, I'm positioning based on the wind and how he's moving with that wind, and then I hunt him, and Huge. that's it. Huge. I agree. My wall looks nothing like yours, Adam, but I can see that as well. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a big one. I think that's one that, and it, honestly, it's tough for guys because a lot of guys love, and I'm not saying you can't do it, but a lot of guys like to go in pre-hang sets, right? But honestly, you have to be so responsive to the situation. Which you can do. If you can identify a, sure. a bedding area is the thing that comes to mind for me. If there's a defined bedding area and there's a clear downwind travel route, and let's say after that it slopes, I've got a spot. We call it Brian's stand. Mm -hmm. um, there's just basically a, an, an opening um, before it falls off on the ridge behind me and it's a bedding area. And so, and so if I have a north wind, I've seen bucks come through, they're cruising the downwind side of that bedding area, yep. but they cannot get downwind of me. And that's a weak spot on their travel area. Correct. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's great to have, you know, tree stands pre-hung everywhere, but there comes a point in time where everybody's going to run across that, that scenario where you've got to be able to go in with a stand on your back. Yep and hang the night that you hunt. And I, I just spent a couple of days in Iowa last week with Andre DeQuisto. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, Andre's in a, a league of his own when it comes to understanding deer and hunting aggressively and hanging hunt. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen his, his new products with the custom gear stuff, yep. but he's taking stuff to a whole different level now, you know, with, well, cause the, he wants like, to be mobile. Well, yeah. And you have to be able to do that because in, during hunting season, stuff is changing on a daily basis. Yep. And you've got to be, you got to be um, aggressive enough to realize what's going on. And when you see a big deer making a mistake, you see him once. Great. You see him twice do the same mistake, then it could be over. You've got to be able to react to that and go in. And, you know, one of my biggest deer ever, I killed, that I had stands pre-hung everywhere, trail cameras up everywhere. Hadn't seen that deer. He pops out in the back of a cornfield one night pushing a couple of does and I had nothing set up over there. I go in the next afternoon, you know, with the stand and sticks on my back, you know, do a little scouting on my way in, watching the wind, hang my set. And, you know, right before dark, I watch a, you know, a 208 inch buck stand up 80 yards away and come walking right past me and, and, and kill him because I was aggressive. Mm -hmm. I went in there with a product that you can actually get away with doing that, you yeah. know, and, and killed that deer because of, you know, being aggressive, doing a hanging hunt. And yeah, you know, a lot of guys I think are afraid of doing that, but I mean, sometimes that's, that's what the situation calls for. Well, imagine the alternative. I know, <laughs> 70 or 80% of guys would probably have gone in there mid afternoon with a ladder stand or, or even a hang on stand to say, well, I'm going to go hang the set midday and then we'll, we'll get out. And there's no way you could have got away with that. You know, you had to, like you said, scouting on the way in, reading the sign, yep. finding the spot and probably being as, as stealthy as possible to just set up and kill him right there. Yeah. And that was one of the things I learned from Andre is exactly what you're talking about. A lot of guys would have taken their set, gone in there, hung it midday, yep. backed out, let the area cool off for a few days. Deer would have smelled them that I, night. 
by then that buck has come through there and picked up on something different, whether it was selling yes, you know, you know, figuring out some branches were cutting, whatever tips him off. Yep. You got to be there the first time that deer comes through there yep. and get it done. 100%. Well, and that's where the, like, given we've made a big transition in the last couple of years from just using cameras in general to using cell cams and, and that recent information being so critical. That said, if I get a buck cruising through on in daylight through my area, I'm already a step behind. Like, it's great that I just got that information. I know he's there. But I should have already been there versus, oh, he's through there now. Yeah. It's all about predicting what they're going to do before they do it and being there to take advantage of it. Easier said I, than I, done. I will, <laughs> I will say one argument for the pre-hung stance is like so many times it doesn't work out and they're doing something different. But, man, when they do what you did when you intended, uh, when mm-hmm. you hung that stand, it's like, oh, that's, that's so great. Cause it's like, well, I'm just gonna go yeah. hunt that stand. Nothing like that. And some of my stands that, you know, our family farm in Ohio have been there longer than these deer have been alive. Yeah, so for they, sure. They don't know what it is. They don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just been part of their habitat. I think it, it is one of those things. Um, and again, we, Jared and I have even had this conversation where, and it, I think it's probably more so during the rut than it is earlier, but you know, is it repetition of hunting a spot and you know, waiting for that deer to make a mistake or is it, and this tends to be how I hunt, it's first time in, I make sure it's as good of opportunity as possible and try to kill them after that. I feel my chances are decreasing. Um, and I think we've heard it from both ways, you know? Yeah. I think every time you go in and you don't get it done, the game gets tougher each time. Mm-hmm. I try to get it done the first time you go in. And if you get the, if you get the patience to wait, I think, for all that stuff to line up before you go in the first time. I, I think I went back in my 10 or 11 biggest bucks I killed. I think all of them were killed the first time I hunted a stand, except for, you know, maybe one or two. Seems um, to be the trend, especially with, and again, this isn't, uh, for anyone listening to this, this isn't just saying about any buck, right? Like, we're really talking about that that mature individual that we're targeting here right if you're if you're just saying like oh you know i just want to go in and kill a three-year-old well yeah man go and hunt the same stand eventually by repetition you're probably going to kill a three-year-old but if you're trying to kill that mature buck that is super super smart i I agree i think the more that you're in there the more he knows you're in there yeah for sure it's hard to even comprehend that difference until you've been hunting for well so i'm 28 so i've been hunting for 14 15 years something mm-hmm. like that since i was 12 mm-hmm. and like it's taken me until even just these recent years to like comprehend how a big buck is different from uh, just other deer you know because mm-hmm. it's so tempting to go out and see sign or trails or whatever it is and just think that a, a big buck is just going to do that eventually yep. it's just a matter of time until he, he does that thing and when you do encounter those big bucks it's like Oh, he, no, he's, he's a different doing animal. something totally different. Yeah, different animal. I, I think that one of the things that's really hard, and, and even still I've been hunting 25 years, it's hard for me to comprehend after even that long is how many mature bucks I've spooked, but frankly, I never even knew were there. Oh, yeah. Like, they winded me. They knew I was in the area. Whatever it is, like, you know, we've all seen that that buck blow out of there and stuff. But I'm talking about the deer that you've never seen who was coming in downwind, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa. Dude, some of the most eye-opening moments that I've had were when I I was able to see a a mature buck do that. It happened to me last year. Mm -hmm. I was hunting a spot, and I saw this buck that I was hunting come in, 
and sure enough, he was coming in downwind, and I watched. I thought I might get away with it because I was on the ridge, and I watched him coming up, and then he he caught my wind. He just picked picked his nose up, and then just turned around and went right, right back, back down in. And I think to That's think back one. to think back on how many situations have you tried like that, or that that probably happened, and you just never. I I can almost guarantee. I would bet money that happened to me this past weekend. And you just never saw him. Never saw him. Yep. So yeah, I I again long winded, right? But the wind. And, and hunting that deer when the wind is in his favor, it's tough, but that is probably the most likely opportunity you're going to have to kill that deer. It's the ticket, yeah. 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 Creates, it creates some challenges, definitely, mm-hmm. when you're giving him the wind. I mean, <clears throat> I think the uh, – I don't know if you guys are using ozonics or not, but when it comes to splitting hairs on wind, where if that wind goes 10 yards or 15 yards one way or the other – and it's the, you know, it's a matter of that deer winning you or not. That is Onyx has saved me a few times on that because I'm always splitting hairs on wind on those setups. So can you share with us a few like specific examples? I know I mentioned one like with the bedding area, but did any come to mind in terms of like certain uh, situations you can look for to set those up? Um, one that comes to mind was a, was a deer that I had using this small stretch of timber that separated a CRP field from soybean field. And I knew, I knew that buck was using that CRP because I'd found his bedding area, you know, the year before late and during uh, late season scouting. And he was basically, you know, coming out of that CRP, hitting this Creek bed, this little stretch of timber. And then he had a nice rub and scrape line, you know, coming up through there, but he would only come out into the bean field I believe it was on a north wind, so the wind would have been blowing straight from the beans into the the covering and into the bedding area. So, you know, how do you get within bow range of a buck when your wind is blowing back into his bedding area? Mm-hmm. From my scouting, I knew about where he was coming out of the CRP, and then he would make a turn and he'd work that timber for about a hundred yards, and then he would turn and come out into the field. And right on that turn, you know was where where was where I was set up because I I had to walk that edge of that field with my scent blowing into the bedding area, but I came in from the opposite end of where he was at. So yeah. I had to basically give up part of that bedding area with my scent blowing in there, but I didn't go past that spot where he was turning to come out into the field. So I'm not sure if you're following me or I not, am hundred percent. Yeah, it's normally where they make some type of turn yep. in their travel pattern. And it seems and like they, they do that too, right, Adam? Like I've, so what you're talking about is coming, if they're paralleling an ultimate destination, your goal is to come in from the opposite direction than when they're approaching. And I would assume also, so let me see if I can not confuse all of us here. If, if we think he's betting in this betting area on a northwest wind, West is perfectly from the food source to him. Northwest is still in his favor. You would want to hunt this stand approaching from like the north and having like a a, a west or southwest wind, I, crosswind. Ideally, so the wind is still in his favor for this whole bedding area, but you're approaching from the opposite direction and have a slight favor on the wind, even though he might not know it. Yeah, I mean he's laying there in his bed. You know, he's smelling everything from the field coming into his bed. When he gets up, 
He's, you know, walking parallel with the field, smelling everything out there. But it was when he makes that turn that he was, you know. That's awesome. That was his vulnerable point. That's yeah, ex- I was vulnerable at. That's exactly what I was trying to do this weekend. It was, it was the same situation, actually. I thought he was betting on this ridge over the eastern hillside of this corn pile that I was hunting. And I thought it was to the north of where I was accessing it. So I was coming in from the south, and ideally I would have had like a west, northwest wind. But it was, you know, truthfully west, more even southwest. But I thought that I was straight south of him far enough that what he would do is get up out of that bed, walk the ridge on the downwind side all the way to where he had that corn pile well within his his range, and then he'd cut right up in front of me. And, you know, obviously it, it didn't pan out, but that's what I was trying to do. And I think in that case too, Jared, it, it again, is in an optimum situation, you wait for that West, northwest wind. But the thing that was running out on me was the, the bay piles driving. Yeah, out. it's like how long is he actually going to be on that pattern before he switches? And, you know, and that's any deer in the early season versus kind of what we're about to hit, which is this mid-range stretch where, you know, if they're hitting scrapes especially, that's that's when I tend to get my beat on them. Yeah. Is as I start to get that scrape repetition, even if they're hitting it at night, I know where they're at, where they're coming from, where they're going, right? And try to continue to make that pattern to wait for that wind direction. And that's probably when I've killed most of these bucks is, you know, that later 20th to 28th of October on those scrape patterns, wait for the right time frame, make the move, keep the wind in their favor, but but are able to really get a beat on them. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear about that scenario. That's... So valuable when, here. when you can I mean, find the stretch too it, of October. It was kind of an aha moment for for me when we. Uh, I'm pretty sure somebody's coined that term too. Maybe that is Azonix, but aha moment. The aha moment. It, it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was when Corey killed it. And granted, it was like a. It was a three year old. Yeah. You know, not a great deer, but that was one of the first times where we were hunting that stand with the wind blowing kind of into a bedding area, which was, you know, seemed to kind of ask backwards for me. I was like, I don't know about this, but just by happenstance that deer came from the opposite direction parallel in that food source and did exactly that he cut up right in front of us and i was like oh i was like i i think we could recreate this in a couple different areas on our farm and and we have done that i I think one of the big ones and again tie this all together when you have those like adam said those multiple factors come together we backtracked this deer over jared's shoulder which you might not be able to see adam but it's a 162 inch buck that I killed here in Pennsylvania. Biggest buck that I've ever killed in Pennsylvania with my bow. It was on October 23rd, which just so happened was a red moon or within the red moon period, according to the app. Uh, I had gone in and done a hanging hunt. I knew where this deer had bedded and, and I knew kind of where they were hitting the scrape, right? I didn't have exact pinpoints on bed, but kind of knew directionally where they were coming from. But there was a weather front moving through that day. And so I actually went in when the wind would have not been in my favor for where I thought these deer were coming through. And it was like two o'clock in anticipation that when the front blew through an hour and a half before dark, that wind was going to switch and it became in my favor and still in his. Mm-hmm. And I killed that deer right before dark. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it was still, and you had that the weather front moved. I think weather front moved through. Wind went in his favor and was still in mine. He was heading to a scrape. It was Redmond. Like multiple factors that again, if you're looking at one of these alignment dates, it's like, damn, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Perfect storm. Yeah, there you go. 
And that's, frankly, again, I think to your point of patience, and I've done it for multiple deer, this deer sitting in front of us, first day I hunted all season, which I kind of hate. Like, I used to love, man, it was like Christmas Eve, the day before the opener, just to be back in the stand and stuff. But frankly, the more seasoned you get and the more determined you get to kill big bucks and old bucks, you can't just go hunt because you want to go hunt. You can, but you're probably not going to kill as many big bucks as you want to. Yeah. Yeah, like I said earlier, toughest part of hunting big deer is probably actually not hunting them, you know? It is. You're better off scouting or, you know, sitting in an observation stand a few hundred yards away and waiting for everything to line up before you dive into that kill spot. Yeah, and that is a tough thing for most guys who just love hunting. And they just, you know, if any, they, they don't care if they don't see anything. They want to be in the stand. But understand every time you do that the chances of you getting a mature buck are going down they're dwindling you're affecting your ability for success i'm not trying to talk anybody out of hunting I well, mean, yeah we all i get it love it yeah and you know i'm out there every day but you know stay out of those a spots until the, yep. de- the deck is stacked in your favor yep i think that's a big one and that's that's really why i've gone back to hanging hunts a lot is that I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then as I see those kind of things all start to align, it's like, all right, I'm going to hang and hunt and I'm going to do it here. And it's the first time I'm going to be in that spot. And it's because I think that my chances of killing that buck are at a peak. What's the third variable? Really for me, it's, it's the wind and the moon and the weather. I mean, the the wind and the moon are the, are the two big things. And then when you can throw a good weather weather pattern on top of that, I mean, it's just the icing on the cake. You yep. know, you get a high pressure day or a cold front moving in, you know, something that's just going to increase activity. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, just a no brainer. What do you think? Uh, and again, I'm sure it changes. It does. It changes from year to year, but maybe a handful of days every hunting season that the three of those can align think that's right what was the question is it you think it's maybe just a handful of days all season that like red moon winter weather pattern actually all come together and kind of add a head perfect storm oh man be hard to put a number on it but they're few and far between when you get them all yep but it's like i said it's that's that perfect storm that everybody's everybody's waiting on when everything comes together. Yeah. You better be in your spot on those days. I assume that that's probably some of, and we don't, nobody's really looked at it from an analysis standpoint, but those days where you open up your Facebook feed or whatever, and you're like, damn, like big bucks fell. And usually it, it is correlated with a weather front, but I wonder how many of those factors then overlap with, you know, an overhead or what, underfoot. If you, if you pay attention to social media, every time that red moon comes around, yeah, you see a spike in big deer hitting the ground. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. I, I think there's a, <clears throat> it's almost worth a conversation to talk about. Like, I think everything we've talked about at this point is like natural movement aside from corn piles we've mentioned, but like, it seems like there are things that will force almost unnatural movement. I think maybe corn piles could be one of those calling at deer. Maybe could be considered one of those. And I think maybe the rut as a whole or like just a hot doe may force that. So those would be those things to point out and say, well, it's not any of these things. It's not a cold front. It's not a red moon, but that thing happened and that got that buck up to to do something. Mm -hmm. And those, those I think are a justification for, time on stand essentially or you know to, to just be in the woods 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Or, or a dog. My dad killed a double drop tine out on our farm that we had never seen before uh, that some dogs chased off of a property. Yeah. That how do you, there's no way to like luck factor. Well, check the moon guide for that or well, listen, check, and, check the dog guide, you and, know? <laughs> and obviously I think with what Adam's kind of laid that in three point, there is always the fourth factor, which is just plain ass lock. Like luck. there, there are guys who kill a 200 incher who frankly should never kill a 200. If you had to put an, if you had to put a number on it, Adam gun to your head, what percentage of, <laughs> of killing a giant buck is luck? I'd rather be lucky than good. Anyway. <laughs> Sure. I don't know. Hard to say. I mean, I I would assume if you looked at your four two hundred, I'm around right? sixty. I'm between sixty and seventy percent. Well, let's see. If you look, I'll, at, I'll go with six. Sixty is my answer. If you look at the four <laughs> four two hundreds that you killed, Adam, um, do you are would it be a hundred percent of those four you had like had the strategy, you executed the strategy, you killed the deer. Yeah, all of them. There you go. So I think that, and again, and I think that's because there are, I mean, listen, there are guys that, that will kill a 200-inch deer that is just pure damn ass lock. It, it happens all the time every season. But I think if you're hunting a specific deer, mm -hmm. there's still an element of there's luck, a lot to less it, luck to it. But, yeah. but I think it's a lot less than people think. Yeah. Um, versus the guy who kills a buck that you're hunting and you're like, yeah, that's pure ass lock. Anybody that kills big deer consistently, I There's guarantee they've got some kind of system yes. that has worked for them. And, you know, this is just my system um, that that's worked for me for, you know, the last 20 years, you know, clearly paying attention, you know, finding the deer, you know, getting out and finding the deer I want to kill, getting permission, doing my scouting, figuring out, you know, the, where those weak spots are at, you know, what's going to make that deer comfortable to move. Um, and then waiting for the moon and the wind and maybe even the weather on occasions all coming together and staying out of that spot until all that stuff lines up. I mean, that's just the system that I've used and it's worked for me. And I don't know why, um, it wouldn't work for other guys following it, but I'm not saying at all that that's the system and the only system to sure. use. But it does seem right. it, it has, I mean, Ben Rising is a guy who will swear by the moon god. And if I look at Ben Rising's success and his wall, dude kills big bucks consistently. Sure. Yeah. So, and he's not the only one. I'm sure, I'm sure there are yeah. a lot of people out there. Yeah. I, ben everything he knows. <laughs> yeah. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's exactly it. Uh, just you and the Amish. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that when it goes, when it comes time to it, it is, um, it is such a system of finding the deer then making a strategy Top and then hunting the deer. Yes, that's yeah, that's funny, funny dude. We'll make sure we have, he'll have something to say about that. It, it is such a system though. And I think that, um, the guys, if you want to kill big bucks consistently, you have to have a system. Like you can't just go out there and wing it. Like it's not just, it's not going to work consistently. It may work once or twice, but it consistently, it will not work. It's just it. I, a couple other things um, I wanted to get to. I, that's is very helpful to to run through the the whole moon guide and and understanding mm -hmm. the variables you're looking Next at. Time to hunt. We're going to be paying attention to it this year. Yeah, yes, we will be. Um, so some other things I wanted to talk to you about, um, Adam, was just scent control um, o overall. And and I know you mentioned ozonics. I assume that's something you use in the tree. But um, 
are you comfortable sharing with us just kind of like what some of your preparation of, of your clothes of like, you know, washing, what kind of process do you have to try to, to beat a deer's nose? It's, it's not rocket science. I'm sure I'm probably doing the same thing that most guys do, you know, keeping everything clean. Um, I don't, you know, I don't put anything on until I actually get out to where I'm hunting. Um, so just washing with a detergent, you're washing your clothes with a detergent. Yeah. I mean, I started using the, uh, the deer society and illusion guys that the phase products. Yep. I really like that. I really like it because, you know, we've all used the, the green bottle you know, <laughs> yep. over the years and that stuff will dry your skin out like crazy. And that the phase products are nice because it's, this might sound kind of funny, but it's a salon quality product. Mm, yeah. It keeps you moisturized. And if you think about it, that's a big deal because Huge. if you get dry skin and you know, you're the, you know, flaking. Dan yep. or whatever it is, you know, flying off of you everywhere, just more, you know, scent in the air. But That's the key to hunting cool. Kansas, man, is that wind will dry your shit out. Stay you best, moist. you best yeah. moisten up. <laughs> I, I, I've got it. I don't I really like, like their, I really like their stuff. I really like the foam yeah. you know, instead of the spray. Yeah. Cause that seems like you get a better, you know, coverage with that. But um, yeah, between that and, you know, I carry, I carry all my hunting gear, all my filming gear in with me. My pack weighs 40 pounds when I go out hunting. Mm -hmm. I don't need to carry an extra product with me. Sure. And I, I fought the Ozonics thing for a couple of years, but once I started using it and saw it work, I won't hunt without it. Interesting. So you can, you can stay as clean as possible. And I kind of think of that Ozonics kind of like, you know, my, my uh, security system on my house, it covers everything. Yep. Yeah. You know, you do everything you can to be scent free. And then you got that extra layer on top of everything. Yep. I even been wearing it, you know, elk hunting in their backpack the last few years, you know, as I'm still hunting and spot and stock. And it's probably a great idea. I did it in Kansas when I shot that big uh, 219, but I actually wore that Ozonics in the backpack going into my tree stand yeah. in case something smelled me going in there. So, yeah, I believe in that 100%. We got a little concerned when we started seeing, <clears throat> so when Bill Winky from Midwest Whitetail picked him up as a sponsor, it seemed like he started taking a lot of naps in those blinds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're supposed to use those in you're like, yeah, Bill, You have to areas. open the window, Bill. <laughs> he started taking a lot of naps. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to breathe a lot of that stuff in. So I've got a, a remedy or whatever. Does that, that answer I, your question? I, I'm curious if you've heard. Yeah, well, I've got more to it. Yeah. So um, my uncle and i don't want to give away his secret sauce but he is a big believer in baking soda and he's got a uh he's got a saying he says uh baking soda to the arson groin will often yield the tenderloin <laughs> that's what he likes to say before he <laughs> gives her a dust he's just avoiding I chafing use, i use baking soda for probably 20 years before a lot of the products on the market were out yeah just keeping everything clean you know, I'd use a box of baking soda for every load of wash I did. A whole box. Mm -hmm. Oh my word! Interesting. I've I've been using it for a long time too. I don't necessarily know why, but I I sprinkle it in there. Well, I mean, it's it, a lot of. I mean, the in the old day, I say old days. It's when I was ago. growing up and as a kid. Like there was always a baking open box fridge, of baking yeah. soda. Yeah, in the fridge to capture what moisture and and scent absorbs it. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> 
Uh, so you don't use baking soda anymore. You've replaced that with just the phase and. Yeah. And anything that touches my body um, gets washed after every use. Yep. But now like my outer garments, I'll stick them in the, you know, the locker or the dry wash bag with the ozonics and run it through a cycle and it's good to go. So I'm not doing as much laundry as I used to, yep. but it's nice to be able to put your boots and backpack and, all your clothes in one of those lockers and run it through a dry, you know, a, a cycle on the ozonics and clean it all and then hang it outside and let it. Yep. I think that's around. a big one because I know the one thing that at least, cause I like to try to wash my clothes frequently, especially base layers, but the outer garments that DWR will start to wear off over time with washing. And then obviously if you're out there and you, it rains or something. Yeah. It, I mean, ozone is hard on stuff too, especially. It rock, is, rock. but I think that cycle is, regulated enough that it's not supposed to deteriorate it as much did you ever see that product is it ozonics that came out with the car unit no scent crusher scent crusher and then there was like people driving around with it like yeah well <laughs> that that that's where the ozone discussion comes into play because from a medical profession side which is used it it's undisputable it absolutely but kills bacteria to the point of if it is working as strong as it should then you breathing it in or or being in close application would be harsh on your body that's the only disputable piece of the ozone conversation is is application mm -hmm. in the field or mm -hmm. ozonics has got a unit for your truck now do they do they yep yeah there you go plugged in a cigarette lighter yep so and i assume with that they say don't be in the truck while it's using well, yeah right. yeah with the windows up and a quick story on that i uh, <laughs> i showed up at one of my properties and the landowner this old lady She's in her garage tearing everything out of her car. And I just asked her what was going on. She had spilled gas in the back of her car, getting, you know, gasoline for the lawnmower. Mm -hmm. She's like, I've had this thing professionally cleaned twice and I cannot get rid of this odor. I was going out to the woods, you know, to hang a stand and grab a couple cameras. I stuck my ozonics in her car for an hour, come back, and the gasoline smell was gone. Wow. Crazy. Gone crazy it's amazing how those things work yeah i think that's an important piece yeah that that's been it's it's undisputable that it works to kill bacteria and odors and things like that it's just to what levels of here's here's another one that i'm yeah. tinkering with that i feel like i'm seeing some success with but it's to be determined here mm -hmm. and that's um smoke um i'm getting mine from a uh a burner a wood burner stuff but i imagine you know you could get it kind of Mm -hmm. any any way that a fire is taking place is I'm just wafting all of my stuff in like my parents have a uh, a wood burning stove and it's getting that smoky smell it smells like a campfire um you know when I go out to hunt and just observationally you know I don't have any scientific data to to back it up but it seems like I'm getting away with a lot more um when I do that mm -hmm. have you heard of guys doing natural. that it's natural and I know I know some guys that have had luck with it in the past for sure well I mean it's the original carbon effect right well and i wouldn't argue that it's killing my scent necessarily as much as it is cover ma up. masking it well and i think that goes back to the old cover-up scent days of you know i knew guys who used to put raccoon piss on yeah, their red boots, fox here you know? and stuff yeah just as masking their their scent they didn't feel they could get rid of it so they'd mask it mm -hmm. yeah um all right well um adam and we we appreciate you taking some time to to talk with us about this um i guess one thing i, I want to give you the opportunity for listeners to to jump on is 
obviously Jared and I have went in and we downloaded the Moon God app. Um, are you guys still selling the dial as well? Yeah, it's um, it's kind of going by the wayside now because yep, you don't go anywhere without your phone. But yep, still got a pretty still got a pretty good following with you know the the older generation with the dial. Yep, guys guys want that dial, and then obviously the Amish community. Yeah, mm. still, that's why Ben Rising uses it. I don't know about that, dude. <laughs> the Amish send me more digital trail camera pictures than anybody. <laughs> For a long time, they were like, well, we can receive them, but we're not allowed to send them. <laughs> now they're just like, yeah, forget it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So people can go on. I just went in. I've got an Apple device. So I just went in the app store, buy it. And then um, what is it for a full year on the app? Twenty-four ninety-nine. There you go. So well worth it, obviously, to have a, that extra bit of confidence and prediction ability and Cool. Where can people keep up with you, Adam? You got shows dropping, new episodes of two, Team 200, I assume. Anywhere else? Yep. Everything is um, available on the Pursuit channel and then digitally through Waypoint TV. Cool. Yeah. Very cool, man. There you go. Well, again, we appreciate you coming on and, and help educating us on this thing. I think it's something that, um, you know, people hear Moon and, and I, frankly, I don't think that many have a very good grasp on what they're hearing or how to even put it to use. You know, again, moon phase versus over uh, overhead underfoot. I think this conversation, this podcast really helped clarify the difference between red moon and that you guys are talking about with the overhead underfoot alignment to peak movement times uh, versus moon phase and how that, you know, does or does not affect rutting activity and rut phases and things like that. Yep. So, yeah, I think, I think everybody knows there's, you know, something to it, but they don't really understand it. So, no, I think that was a, good, a learning, definitely a learning curve with it. Well, let's keep this conversation going. I'm going to talk with Bronson and, and maybe some of the other professors, see if I can get my hands on the data of which then we can cross reference having the app and, and how that all correlates. I think that would be let's try to make an analysis to what the three of us are looking for, which is those four months and, and mature buck movement and how it aligns with some of those things. And that'll at least help hundred percent. Cool, man. Well, we appreciate it, man. Uh, best of luck to you this season. And, uh, hopefully if you put one of those two hundos down, we'll get you back on the podcast to tell us about it. Good deal, man. Well, I appreciate you guys inviting me on and I'll, uh, <clears throat> love to, I'd love to visit with you guys again and good luck this fall and be safe. All right, we appreciate Adam. it, man. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yeah, thank you. Team 200. Straight from the horse's mouth. There's nobody probably more equipped to tell you about the moon guide specifically. Well, and, and what I like about master himself. that conversation is, you know, obviously Adam's very passionate about the red moon and how, how that all comes from Jeff Murray's original uh, designs and discoveries. Which I, I didn't necessarily realize. I kind of knew that. I, well, I knew that there was somebody else, and then he acquired it. Um, I, di I didn't know Jeff personally, but when he passed. I think what's interesting, though, is, like, obviously, just like anybody logically thinking would say, is, like, there's other factors here, right? There's weather factors. There's there's other fa hunting pressure. Whether or not you have a mustache. That apparently, I don't know, that hasn't come into any luck for us. <laughs> Seems to be the biggest factor. Factor in number four. Mustache. Mustache you a question. <laughs> So I, I think that like, as we start to look at that, like there are other factors that said, 
you know, the fact that we can align some of these um, big buck observations with that red moon, I wouldn't say necessarily proves that it's a bar none factor, but I mean, it definitely has, I mean, dude, has it something seems, to it. It seems pretty easy to figure out. Like if, just do a study on mature deer. We're like, going to get data. Collar mature deer. Granted, I, they think, already have. I do think there was a flaw in the argument. Like I know Adam wants to see mature buck movement, but at the same time should be any deer at the same time he's claiming overhead underfoot affects all deer movement animal movement cows he said yeah for the sake of you know our argument let's look at deer but i'd like to revisit we should be able to partial that out we'll get bronson on because that's it dude he has the data if they can if they can correlate deer movement to overhead or underfoot that would prove or disprove the moon guide bronson has the data and again, it's it's one herd or two herds, so let's sure. take it for what it's Accuracy worth. Accuracy of data is super important. And I'm sure there's other factors, hunting pressure, whatever happening. That said, we have collared bucks. We have, of in those collared bucks, we have mature bucks. So let's look at deer or bucks in general, and then let's look at mature deer, and let's see how those correlate together, um, and does it support it. If I pick some samples out, right, this deer here, that deer behind you, the deer in Illinois, there's overlap with the red moon. Mm-hmm. That said, overlap. That said, at least from my observations on the moon guide, during a given month, there are about 12 to 15 days that are red moon. That's a 50% chance that the observation happens during red moon. Yeah. Purely, purely by the numbers. We need to do some research and, or like get a scientist in here to understand because the hardest part about it's Bronson. Well, the hardest part about the moon guide is that it is one variable that is dependent on other variables. And so how do you isolate it to determine its true effect? I mean, good example is Strauss and I are in Columbus, Ohio on the red moon. We don't see a damn deer where we're at. But it was also 86 degrees. Right. And this is where it gets really hard. Like, you might have bumped as deer walking in there. 100%. The fact that you're hunting at all is some type of human element that's being imposed on your yes. test. So, yeah. tra- so trail cameras, but, but even there, there's an argument that's just some deer trail camera wary. And If I'm Adam, I like the business model because good luck disproving that it yeah, isn't. good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. I, I first of all, I appreciate him coming on. I mean, again, Adam kills big bucks, four two hundos. I mean, who knows how many booners on that wall behind him? Um, you know, and I think that there are a lot of things we can agree with him on, which is his theories and strategies around hunting a favorable wind for deer. Bar none, probably one of the most valuable pieces to take out of that conversation. You're talking point number two. What yes. Is yeah. Huge. Huge. And most people, including Huge. myself. Uh, often hunt the wind for what the advantage in my head is not necessarily to the deer's favor yeah there's a give and take there you know it could be 40 percent in your favor 60 percent in his favor but that might be enough to kill him i like yeah absolutely i like what adam said about um just looking for a weak spot in his travel that's that was a huge take on where's that vulnerability point Mm -hmm. because that may be the setup and the only place you can kill that deer Mm mm-hmm and they're out there. Yeah, there's spots where, you know, that deer will think that uh, the wind is in his favor, and it just, it's mm-hmm. also in your favor. So those that's a that's a huge takeaway. Yep. Well, we appreciate Adam Hayes from Team 200 coming on. Again, uh, this is Team 125 coming at you. Uh, 
<laughs> from the from the Hunter Podcast mm-hmm. Studio. Set the bar low, you'll never be disappointed. That's it. That's it. But uh, we appreciate everybody listening to the Hunter Podcast. Uh, this is episode forty-one. 41. Oh my god, cranking balls deep. Uh, <laughs> and so, at some point, we will talk about us actually releasing an arrow. <laughs> yeah, it, w- it will happen. But uh, man, I did release an arrow. We both did already. Oh well, yeah, that's true. But it is, uh, I think, important. And as much as I don't necessarily like it, he keeps reiterating the my hunting strategy, which is don't hunt till the time's right. But I just want to hunt too. So <laughs> let me say this too: I don't know if Adam would be up for it, but I would love to see a debate between somebody who understands the studies, it may be Bronson, that have been done regarding these, and you know somebody who's a true believer in mm-hmm. in the Moon Guide. Well, I think we got to get the data first. The problem with the the Moon Guide guys is like they seem very they're very emotional about it. You know, I understand that they mm-hmm. they're tied to that belief. Yeah, we almost made Ben Rising cry. I man. know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, poor ben. No, but I think uh, I will say this: based on what I've heard from Ben and Adam on the Moon Guide, I am much more likely to accept their thinking than I am these guys thinking that the moon phase affects the rod. You're full of shit. Get out my wheelhouse. Agreed. I think. I think people are coming around to that. Yeah, that that is that is disproven. Well, not honestly, a factor. That, that's one Get of out. Adam's biggest uh, uphill battles, probably, is that there's been a lot of false claims about the moon phase based. Yep, and Adam's might not be, you know, fake or mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just it's different. Mm-hmm. Well, we're gonna get our hands on some data, and at some point in the future on the Hunter podcast, we'll be able to review that data with you and. Figure it out. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Interesting. All right. Until next week, we're signing off. Later. It's take me. Oh.